Welcome to the latest episode of the Brush Builders Union podcast. I'm your host and general president of the Brush Builders Union, Simon Berman. Smith, I'm joined by my old friend, former co-worker, and generally cool dude, William Hungerford. How are you doing? And former co-host with you on a podcast back in the day. This is like old times. Oh, God, you're right. Back you're when we right. did Primecast, Primecast back in the, yeah, in the, in the mid-teens, we were rocking Primecast, which you started, by the way. It's, it's true, I did. That, that was my fault. <laughs> it was a I mean, good time, though. It, yeah, it, it was, was a, really, a lot of fun. Have you yeah, started it, to figure out how to do a podcast, which, you know, obviously would have been, you know, smart people would have just, you know, read a book on it or something. But, you know, I, I just got some audio gear and uh, hassled coworkers at Privateer Press until we had a podcast. Yeah, but it turned out great. And there's people that still have, like, really fond memories of the old podcast, uh, Primecast. And then it moved to it moved to video after that. But I think that was after you were gone. If I'm yeah, uh, that, that was that was at least somewhat after I was gone. I think I recorded the last audio Primecast probably spring of 2016, somewhere around there. Yeah. And it's on the internet, so it's around forever. So anybody who's listening who wants to hear some some old good stuff from Simon some him really cutting his teeth on the podcast for yeah <laughs> you can uh, go check out old prime guys breaking my teeth on the podcast <laughs> uh, yeah man so uh, yeah i wish i wanted to have you on for ages but you know um you're doing some cool exciting new stuff now i want to talk about that but you know i think people who are listening probably know you best from your time at privateer press but why, why don't we do the standard like you know tell us about the life of hungerford how did you get into gaming sure uh so i've been gaming well before i was in the industry since i was Itty bitty. Um, I literally started like age 10, 11, 12, started back with uh, D&D, uh, got into miniatures very young because the local comic book shop had like old Ralph Partha and, and old games workshop member. Like the first miniature I ever bought was a an old rogue trader space orc box. Hell yeah, rogue and, trader. And like, I don't have those miniatures anymore, but God, I wish I did because there was no priming involved. I owned three paints. Uh, I think the paints I owned were yellow, black, and blue, and I did my best, and it was just a complete nightmare, uh, but we all start there. Um, so I've always been into gaming, and I've always leaned towards game design when I was given the opportunity in the games I play. What I mean by that is I was always the DM. Sure. Uh, if there if there was ever a chance to be creative and to have an outlet to make my own stuff, I always did. Um so life goes on. I go to college. I'm getting a degree in computer science because I intend to go program and work on video games. Get my degree, get out. And it, it kind of occurs to me that there's not as much creative freedom or as that I wanted in the, the coding aspect of stuff. But uh-huh. I have this deep love for games. I still want to work on them. I'm like, wait a second. I've been playing tabletop games my whole life. Why don't I get into the tabletop industry? So, uh, at that point, my main game was War Machine. I've been playing it since 2005, uh, back when Escalation came out. Uh, knew a couple, or knew uh, a person who had gone up there, Ed Burrell, had gotten a job up there, uh, and talked to him, you know, a little bit about the company and what things were like. And I was like, okay, yeah, no, like this is this is what I want to do. And so I just hustled and applied at whatever I felt I could do. Because jumping into game design is very, very difficult, right? You don't just start from, you have no portfolio to getting into game design. So I was like, I'll get into the company at something I can do. I'll do the best at that I can do. And then hopefully an opportunity arises for me where I can 
uh, train, hone some game design skills, and then show that I can do game development and game design. So I ended up coming on in 2010 uh, as their retail support liaison because I had had experience running game stores. Shortly after, um, they realized I was good at managing people and had a good rapport with people and could could talk them through problems and just generally kind of understood communities and, and stuff because I had been a press ganger before. So they they put me in charge of the press gang. They made me the quartermaster, which was the the volunteer group, big, this big global volunteer group of private press. Yeah, private press is the company in question here, I think, just in case. Oh, yeah. That. yeah. Yeah, sorry. Private press, the makers of War Machine and Hordes. Um, and so the press gang was this volunteer group that ran demos, tournaments, you know, they would, uh, go to conventions and like basically were ambassadors to the community. Yeah, it's where I got my start in the game industry too. Yeah. Yeah. It's where myself, Ed Burrell, Lyle Lowry all came from the press gang, all from the same city, actually. Um, Lyle being the editor in chief at, uh, uh, White Dwarf now and Ed's got, um, um, his own skeleton company. key yeah. yeah skeleton key and he's doing the arcane scroll works like he's got a kickstarter right now where he makes like cool D scrolls that are really bad yeah it's doing cool stuff for sure i'll, I'll put yeah. a link to that in the show notes um so anyway i run the the press gang and i do that for five years and because so much of it is organized play not only am i writing how to you know demo scripts and how to run a demo but i started getting involved in actually writing the organized play what the the tournament event formats will be um narrative events and when i start doing the narrative events that involves me writing rules i'm creating scenarios for the game where we're recreating certain battles and i'm having to write rules and that's where i started really cutting my teeth professionally on doing any form of game design or game development i transitioned from that into organized play uh like the head of organized play at Privateer Press, basically, where I was in charge of all the organized play for all the games, and I started was doing more and more game design. Uh, long story short, this eventually led to me being put on the development team, um, which went very well. And the last thing I did at Privateer before I uh, left earlier this year was I was the the lead game developer, where I was basically in charge of. Um, War Machine Hordes, Riot Quest. I did a lot of uh, work on the Iron Kingdom's role-playing game, Requiem, that just came out. And so my day-to-day was, you know, get up, write rules, uh, check play test feedback, you know, refine, meet with people, and then just keep doing that over and over. And I was doing it on like three wildly different game systems. And it was a, it was a really awesome journey that I started from just like, this thing I really wanted to do and kind of got in on the ground floor of helping out, you know, retailers and why they should carry the game to eventually like pitching ideas of new models and writing rules from scratch. It was a, a wild transition over a decade, basically. Yeah, no, for sure. So here, here's a question. You, you, you worked on all these various games in, in different capacities at Privateer over the years. Uh, what were some of the, the, the your biggest takeaways as, um, you know, what's important about game design for, for these different kinds of games? And, you know, what, what are similarities between all of them? It, it's interesting because he there, that's such a, a fun question because I think if you asked a dozen different game designers, you would get a dozen different questions because everyone has their own feel and what, what should be right. Like if some people, you ask like rules fidelity, how clean should the rules be? Some people will be like, oh, that's the absolute most important thing. And some people are like, oh, as long as you make the rules conversational, people will understand it. And sure. if there's any um, uh, problems or uh, things that just don't make sense, they'll, they'll figure it out on their own. For me personally... I feel, okay, 
we'll go back a little bit. What I feel makes a game fun, regardless of what game it is, is the level of player agency. Player agency allows you as a player to even know if you like the game. You can have the best designed game on the planet, but if it's a kind of game where someone doesn't get to take a turn or where their turn in the game doesn't matter or they look at their decisions and go, eh, it doesn't matter, like nothing I do, you're going to win or I'm going to, you know, this is, I'm putting nothing but bad decisions or the choices are just too simple and they don't have anything they can really consider or think about. That's always a problem. Uh, you know, people want, when we play games, we do it as a form of escapism and we want our choices to matter. We want to feel that we have some influence, exert some control over the outcome. Uh, and so for me, one of the things I always look for is, does this game have the proper level of player agency? Does the player feel like they are the star of the show? And then second to me is, I do like writing rules that are very clear and have very little ambiguity. Um, that way at the table, if somebody cracks this open, and they read the rule book and it's just, they have no YouTube videos. They have no tutorials. It's just them reading it and then explaining the game to their friends. When they come up on a discrepancy, they're able to very easily find the answer and not get bogged down in, Oh wait, no, it says this or that. So that's sort of my big two things is player experience and then facilitating that through concise rules writing. Cool. That's a great answer. So actually, I want to dive a little bit into that. So talking about player agency, which in my understanding is sort of um, the opportunity a game presents for the player to make meaningful choices. Would you say that's basically what yes. player agency is? Okay. Do you think it's possible for a game to have too many meaningful choices? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's part of it. Player agency is a sliding scale. And you can end up creating a game that, that facilitates analysis paralysis, where there will be people out there that want a game like that, where they've got dozens of choices every turn, and they have this, this giant sort of Rube Goldberg machine that they're trying to set up. There is a market for that. But I think the majority, you you want to give the, the appropriate amount of decisions, but not so much that when someone looks at the board, they freeze up and go, wait a second, what do I do? And that's game complexity comes, in, in my opinion, one of two flavors. One is just mechanically. The game is... Uh, you know, maybe has a lot of moving parts to it or a lot of difficult parts or maybe even difficult to understand. And that's a function of the, the game rules. And another aspect of complexity is that uh, you give the player too many decisions to make to where they want to make a meaningful decision, but they have too much information to even realistically know what the right decision is. Like there's so many variables. They look at the board state and kind of go, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. Sure. Uh, and that feeling of, of helplessness is when you've gone too far. Makes sense. Cool. So when, when you're in games that you play for fun, where, where's sort of the sweet spot for you? Like what's a good example? Um, you know, I like, I play a lot of minis games and I play a lot of RPGs and, you know, like Dungeons and Dragons is a really good example. Obviously a very popular game. I think everybody knows D and D. Uh, and when you think about it, you have a ton of decisions you're playing on your character, and some characters have more. If you're playing a spellcasting character, you have this giant list of spells. You have all your actions. Then there's the the scene you're in that your your GM has described to you of what's going on. But it never feels too too much, right? And when it comes to war games, you know, I like games that are sort of in that that same that same vein. Like I've got a lot of decisions to make, but it's not too much. So examples would be, you know, Star Wars Legion, Marvel Crisis Protocol, uh, Warhammer 40k. Uh, Necromunda. I think Necromunda 
like two games to me that I feel like have a, a, a really good amount of player agency. And for some people, I understand that it is too a little bit too much, but for me, it's kind of in that sweet spot would be Blood Bowl and Necromunda. Um Blood Bowl's a game, especially that punishes you if you make yeah. the wrong decision, right? If you're just like, oh, I'm going to do this thing for... Yeah, it's yeah. like, I, I'm going to make this dodge attempt as my first thing. Oh, I fell down, your turn, right? Like, it's just... It, right. but, you, but you learn from that. And while you do have, you know, 11 players on the pitch that you have to resolve and figure out the right operations and, and the various things they can, it's never, never too much. There are games on the higher end that I, I personally enjoy like twilight Imperium as an example. Sure. Um, but I understand that that game is not for everybody, right? Some people definitely want something that they have three decisions, five decisions, 12 decisions every turn. Or don't need 12 not, hours to play. Yeah. Some people want the lower time commitment, right? Yeah. It, it, it just depends. So I would say on a complexity scale of one to 10 with one being like, you know, checkers and 10 being our more, complex games are our, our twilight imperiums and some of our more complex war games i personally am in like that six to seven range sure a little bit of crunch to it but not like mega crunchy yeah i mean i think i think it's about where i where i sort of land as well um and i think it's just, you mentioned both necromunda and blood bowl which you know are certainly in miniatures war games in the current um sort of world of uh, arena of that more complicated games but you know i think those are those are probably my two favorites as well um but again, because I've been playing them for you know twenty five years at this point, one degree or another, right? Um, but you know, I, I think personally, I, I've, I've been really thrilled to see so many more um, accessible games coming out in miniatures wargaming. Um, yeah. Games like you know Test of Honor, for example, which is still I think my favorite game of the last ten years, um, where you know it, it has a lot of a, a great, it has fewer meaningful choices, but they're more meaningful individually uh, because you're making fewer of them. If that makes sense. No, I mean, because a, a game, Warcry, right? Warcry sure, comes yeah. out, and, and Warcry is definitely a very easy game to jump into. In terms of complexity, I'd put it like at like a three or a four. Sure. Um, but even though playing it is just dead simple, you still have like your choices do matter, right? And even if your choices are, I can move a guy, I can attack with a guy, or I can do the special action. Like if you have those three options and you're doing that across seven models, and you're having alternating activations, like that's enough agency for for a ton of people. And I think a lot of modern game design follows that philosophy. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, one of the things I really love about Blood Bowl and Necromunda is that because they're so uh, granular in their rules, uh, it allows for a really deep role-playing game experience. And I mean, it's funny to say it about Blood Bowl, but ultimately, you know, an individual game of Blood Bowl isn't all that great. It's when you're playing in the league and you're telling that story with your team and you're seeing, you know, who gets a broken leg or who gets, you know, chainsawed to death by a goblin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the real fun of it. And I it know is. That, but, and I don't know how possible it would be to do that with a less crunchy game. Do you see that? If, if, if that makes sense. Like I know you can have yeah. Warcry campaigns, which is a pretty cool system, but at no point have I read the War, Warcry campaign or played those Warcry campaign games and been as immersed in the story as I am with a really crunchy, probably significantly less well-balanced game than say Necromunda. <laughs> I, and and it, it's interesting because the more crunch you add, the more opportunities you add for for crazy shit to happen. Um, and and I think Blood Bowl does say that because you know if you lower your options, then there's less outcomes that are possible. And I agree with you. Like Blood Bowl's at its best when you have a league and somebody has a crazy star player and they're running away with them, and everyone just fouls them to death, right? Um, yeah. Because or fails to, or fails to, right? I mean, and everyone has an amazing Blood Bowl story. 
I remember we were playing in a league. We had just started, had a guy that was like, I'm going to play halflings this year. I'm going to really take the challenge and I'm going to play halflings, which for anybody who doesn't play Blood Bowl is a very difficult team to play. I mean, literally um, they tell you, don't play this team if you want to win games. Right. Like the rule book says that. Their one saving grace is they can take Treeman. And 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 Treeman were, you know, big burly, great blockers, did a, did a ton of damage. And so we play our first league game of a brand new league with fresh teams. And he's invested so much in his treatment because they cost so much to the team. And on the very first play, I throw my first block. I knock the treatment down. I foul it on my second action and I kill it. Incredible. And that's, the that's Blood Bowl, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, that was Blood Bowl. <laughs> And for the rest of the league, he had just this team of dumpers running around, just doing their best. <laughs> wow, that, that, I mean, that that's like the iconic Blood Bowl story, honestly. Like, yeah, and like doing your best and failing anyway. <laughs> exactly, or you know, he was just he was so excited, and I crushed his dreams so thoroughly. And you, it's Blood Bowl, so you can't feel bad, right? Yeah, like it's one of the few games where like you can't feel like you should feel bad because it's Blood Bowl. Yeah. Like, um, but yeah, I mean, you know. For my taste, you know, I prefer the more narrative-based stuff. You know, even in 40K and stuff, I'm more interested in playing, you know, Crusade or um, Path to Glory for Age of Sigmar as opposed to competitive play. Because, you know, my, where I've come, having been a competitive War Machine player many, many years ago, where I finally kind of landed on is that I really don't really care for competition in War Games, um, simply because that unless you're playing on a gridded system like, say, Blood Bowl or Battletech to a certain degree, mm-hmm. um, the, the imperfect measuring makes the game impossible to have a perfect state in and kind of are inherently not very friendly to competitive play. And I, I, I see why people like it and there's certainly a lot of fun to be had there, but I've come around to the fact that I'd, I'd rather play an imbalanced and narrative game than a competitive game. And I think that's sort of, I, I feel like there was a period of time where Wargaming had moved super in a competitive fashion across the board for most all of the major companies. And it's like a lot of people sort of had the same realization I had about five or six years ago. I was like, I'd rather just play this and tell a weird story with my cool painted miniatures. And it's interesting because it's it's like all games that we play, you have to strike a balance with the people that you play against, no matter who you're playing inside a tournament or out, right? Because some people, they'll play not, like they, they don't play in tournaments, but they still bring lists that are tournament worthy. Sure. Uh, and it's, it's, it's interesting. It feels like the... The, the conversation you're supposed to have with your opponent, like some people feel really uncomfortable doing that. Some people feel really comfortable. And I'm a fan of when the game system helps facilitate that in some degree, but it can be a very difficult thing to do between two people who's like, oh no, I just want to play the best, absolute best list I can. Like my list is hyper optimized to, to win. And you're like, I picked a theme. I'm playing all goblins. Right. right? And so you do see, you know, less of the hyper optimized when you're not playing in tournaments, and you, you play that more narrative. And then some games, like I said, just lend themselves to not really being competitive games. Um, I do understand people that love all aspects of it, and my main feeling has always been just don't introduce cash prizes to competitive play. No, because um, when there's say twenty five thousand dollars on the line and something is an eighth of an inch out on a normal, you know, ruler I got from Walmart, um, the, you know, there's going to be a fist fight. Like yeah, it's, you're, it's, you're, it's, somebody's going to court at the end of that. Right. Like, right. Yeah. It's not like magic that has a fixed board state with the cards or a gridded game like battle tech or blood bowl, where you just have a game state that if somebody flipped the board, if you had a camera on it, you could literally recreate the board state where if somebody walked up to a traditional war game and flipped the table, you're screwed. Right. You can never recreate that perfectly. I and mean, that's how I like to win my games personally. 
flipping tables and yeah, then I just, I just the table and say I won. What are they I gonna mean, do? Prove otherwise? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, just, right. Nobody plays Simon Berman in tournaments, folks. He's a shark. I, I just I just I'm just I'm just I'm not here to make friends. <laughs> anyway. God. Um your your opponents are not your friends. No. No, I, we came here, I came here to play serious war dolls, not not to make friends with people. Um, <laughs> but uh, I had a point, and I've completely lost it now. Um, it's okay. So I guess, so these days, you know, you've taken all these lessons you've learned over 10 years at Privateer Press and other game design stuff, personal, you know, and now you're working at Broken Anvil. Yeah, so... What are you doing over there? Tell me, who is Broken Anvil? Who are Broken Anvil? What are they, what are they about? Sure. So uh, in June, I left Privateer Press. Um, and I have joined up with a much newer company here in the Seattle area in a city called Auburn, which is very near Seattle, um, called Broken Anvil Miniatures. So Broken Anvil has uh, some people that, uh, a bunch of new faces to the miniature gaming and sort of tabletop gaming world, and then some familiar faces like uh, Jordan Lamb, who used to be a studio painter at, at Privateer. Um, we have Chris Walton with us doing concept art. Uh, and it's this group of really enthusiastic, really passionate uh, players and also just sort of model enthusiasts who, where it all started is they have a monthly Patreon, Broken Anvil Monthly. And they do 3D STLs that you download and you do, you know, 3D printing at home. And that Patreon started earlier this year and already has, you know, well over a thousand people and it's just growing every single day. And if you've never checked out, look up Broken Anvil Monthly on Patreon. For I'll be linked in the show notes. Yeah, it's it's $9 a month. You get 50 plus miniatures. Really awesome miniatures. So if you have access to a 3D printer, it is, oh, it is an absurd value. And every month is themed. And so the, this month is Warriors and Warrens which is a bunch of rabbit folk. And they're then, pretty cool. Yeah, I like it. It's like rabbit folk heroes and then the things that they might encounter in a fantasy world where rabbit folk were the, the main you know characters. So you have like ogres that are trying to catch them and eat them. You have human hunters that kind of come through the woods. You have like these wolf, uh, like werewolf creatures that, you know, are the bad guys. And then other like friendlies. And so every month is a different theme. You can get all kinds of super cool miniatures. So they decided they wanted to get into tabletop gaming and talk to them at length of what they wanted to do and what they were going for and decided to join forces with them. Um, William Schoonover, a lot of people know him as Oz, had uh, also left Privateer and had gone to Broken Anvil to start working on the game that we're currently working on. Now, Oz uh, ended up uh, moving on, not for any bad reasons. He just had some stuff uh, come up and ended up uh, moving on to a different opportunity. And I kind of stepped in right after him. And there's this game that at this point is basically co-designed by Oz and I, because he laid the foundation and all the, the the groundwork. And then I kind of picked up the ball that Oz had left behind and took, took off with it uh, called Rivenstone that's coming out. And this game's going to be coming out likely next year. And it is, it's been really fun to have this sort of like blank slate opportunity to create a new lifestyle game. When I say the lifestyle game, I mean, um, uh, in miniatures gaming, you have like one shot games that you sort of buy that game and you have everything you need for it. And lifestyle games being things like Warhammer war machine, where you're, you're constantly buying and expanding your, and adding to your army and stuff, right. And adding to your army. 
And just being able to take 10 years of what I learned at Privateer and then a lot of what I've observed um, through other modern game design, games like Marvel Crisis Protocol, X-Wing, Star Wars Legion, what they've done with 40K and Age of Sigmar, and take also my personal tastes and be able to kind of create this game from, you know, with what Oz had, had created as well. And I think anybody who plays the game, it will feel very much like something that Oz and I had have done. So if anybody played like the second edition of Monster Apocalypse or Riot Quest or, you know, familiar with War Machine, it doesn't play like any of those games, but in terms of like clean rules and, uh, you know, fun interactions or anybody who's like a fan of those style, they'll be a fan of this game as well. Right on. Yeah. So go, go ahead, don't let me interrupt. I was going to say, uh, well, if you had any questions, and then we can talk more about what the game is if you want to talk about that, but I was going to hear what you had to say. Oh, I mean, that's just what I was going to ask. You know, I, I, I've been aware of Broken Anvil for, for a minute. It's just some really cool models. They don't, I don't have a 3D printer, so I hadn't really gotten involved, but I thought there were some, some pretty sweet uh, figures coming out of there. So um, is Rivenstone going to be using stuff that's been previously made through the Patreon, or is it all new models? It's all new models, and the game is not 3D printed. So while the Patreon is a 3D printed service to be able to get people, you know, 50-plus models every single month, they're all new sculpts, Rivenstone is going to be a traditional... You know, the miniatures are, they're packaged. You know, you buy them. You, you'll you buy a box of miniatures. Yeah, you'll buy a box of miniatures and you'll have all the stat cards and, and whatever tokens you might need. They'll be starter boxes and you'll build your force and, and paint it. Um, and they're all going to be made out of a CO cast. Uh, I'm not sure. If, have you ever heard of CO cast before? I'm not familiar, no. So CO cast is a form of a thermo resin, basically. Uh-huh. Um, it, it's a really durable resin that when it comes out of the machine has almost no mold lines on it all you have to do is clip away the flash that comes on it and it's slightly pliable so that like cleaning it and uh painting it no different than any other miniature but what it does mean is you could take a a, a co cast miniature and say drop a piece on the floor and chances are it's going to be totally fine sure uh it's it, so i want to i don't want to use the term rubbery because it's not rubbery but like if you grab a miniature that say has like a spindly whip you could kind of bend it it wouldn't break and then when you let go it would go back into position sure uh so it's a really cool material that sort of just now you were seeing more and more of it out there um so yeah people will buy their miniatures pre-made they'll build their force uh, is a skirmish game so you know, you only need 11 to 15 miniatures to play the game. Uh-huh. Plays plays in about an hour. Um, and in terms of complexity, it's sort of in that range we were talking about earlier. I put it at like a six or a seven in yeah. terms of complexity. So not like crazy crunchy, but, you know, it's it's got it's got something to it for sure. Cool. All right, I, I have a million follow-up questions, but I think the one I want to hear first, because I think that's what people want to hear when they hear about a new game is, what what is, what is the world of Rivenstone? Like, who are you playing? Why are they fighting? Why do you want to be involved in that? Okay. So anybody who's a fan of games like Final Fantasy, uh, World of Warcraft, Monster Hunter, when I say that, I mean that level of high fantasy. Sure. Is the basis of what Rivenstone is. So you're a going little, to have... Maybe a little cartoony? I wouldn't say cartoony, but more the idea that, like, this is a world where you have dwarves, orcs, elves, humans, dragons knights with swords and shields uh-huh. and then you have uh lines of fusilancers which are individuals that have giant handheld pikes that have guns built into them nice. uh, you have 
you know, necromancers wielding magic against uh, dwarves in mining mechs. Uh, so you have this, it's not steampunk by any means. It's more just like high fantasy tech where uh-huh. it's tra- traditional sword and sorcery mixed with this layer of technology. Um, and let me, let me explain the, the setting in the world and, and yeah, see where that came from. So Rivetstone takes place on a world where magic is so potent. It, it It's not some ethereal thing that people draw, you know, out of nowhere, out of thin air. No one's like snapping their fingers. It, it literally grows. It, it coagulates and it grows out of the ground in these giant crystalline deposits called Rivenstone. So for all of recorded history, every race, every nation, every tribe, empire had Rivenstone deposits in their land and people would go mine it and they would use it in different ways. Some people would use it for fuel. Some people would make jewelry out of it. Some people would use it for traditional magic where they'd grind it up to use as reagents. Some people would break it and eat it to see what would happen to them. But every society evolved in some different capacity, uh, you know, culturally, religiously, technologically, based on how they used Rivenstone. Uh-huh. And it was the the fuel of evolution. So one day, a bunch of human mages called the Augurs, because it's always humans that have to screw everything up. Typical. Come together and say, hey, if... All of us across the globe are all sort of progressing because of the prevalence of Rivenstone. If one group were to get all the world's Rivenstone and could harness it, that group would evolve beyond mortal means and could then benefit the entire world. And the rest, they they kind of proposed this to the other nations and and kingdoms. And the rest of the world kind of said, no, that's a terrible idea. We're not doing that. And the augurs said, well, okay, but we are. And so they started invading other countries and taking all the Rivenstone. Some people stood up to try and fight them. Some people kind of stayed neutral, hoping for the whole thing to play out. And the Augurs won. They raided, scoured, and pillaged the entire planet of all of its Rivenstone, brought it back to their empire, and began experimenting on it to see if they could cause this sort of very focused evolution. And they succeeded. Um, they transcended their mortal forms. They evolved into otherworldly beings. And in the process, they left the material plane and they punched a hole in reality and went to the other side. Oh, um, when that happened, a, they punched a hole in reality. Right. And B, yeah, that was the first bad part. And B, all of the Rivenstone exploded. Oh, so it, it, changed forms in the in the experimentation from solid to um gaseous being the best term but sort of liquid and gaseous it became not riven stone it became the riven storm uh it became a weather pattern of pure arcane magic that began passing over the world sick some places totally untouched some places just devastated just you know destroyed and some places just mutated like a forest might still be standing but now it's a bioluminescent forest Mm -hmm. or the top of a mountain got sheared off but kept floating or you know a desert became sentient and you know was capable of communicating with other other creatures this storm lasted for 400 years and some civilizations were wiped out. Most of them survived, and most of them survived by either hiding underground or living in protected magical enclaves where they could be safe. So, after 400 years of this, like magma out of a volcano cooling into rock, the storm started to abate, 
and Riven Stone began to regrow as the storm sort of settled back into the planet. And as soon as that happened, those kingdoms, nations, empires that were in any position to do so sent out their best, brightest, and strongest to go harvest Rivenstone because it had been gone for 400 years uh-huh. to begin rebuilding their empires or just kickstarting their conquest of their fallen neighbors. So this is not post-apocalyptic. It's post-cataclysmic. Sure. Um, and that's where the game takes place is in that moment where the doors of the havens are opening and you play a war band of heroes and soldiers, the battlefield you play on could be anything that your imagination can think of. So if you want to play in a ruined city, go nuts. You want to play in a sentient cloud, feel free. You want to play in an underground mine, do it. Any Anything you want to do out there, the rules support it. Um, and every scenario you play, uh, has a map that's based on the scenario. And it also says, put down Rivenstone deposits, you know, here, here, and here on the map. Uh-huh. And then you build, you build your terrain around them. And a big part of the game is harvesting Rivenstone in the middle of the game to get shards out of it, which empower your models and let them unlock certain abilities and stuff. But the, the, the driving narrative of the game is you're trying to stake claims and set up mining operations or what, what have you over this freshly grown Rivenstone that is coming back over the earth. And it's this giant, resource war uh from all these individual factions um the it's a gold rush fi- it's a gold rush but it's a gold rush in a high fantasy setting. right yeah. yeah of course oh it's super cool uh, we have five factions launching initially and i'll go through those really briefly we have the shattered empire which are humans the Shattered Empire were the empire that was supporting the augurs before they left and now they're trying to come back and reconstitute humanity and 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 rebuild uh you know all of the fallen kingdoms nations and everything around them into a single empire um their thing they're very techy very hybrid so you'll have like a traditional like a line trooper who has a sword and a shield but a shield's got a gun built into it or you'll have a a guy with a giant two-handed maul but the, the maul has like a revolver hammer on it and has a hole in the front where the ham it looks like he swings the hammer and then the hammer like blast and shoot people so they use a lot of like hybrid awesome. tech um their other big thing is their bloodline got affected where a lot of the humans started being born instead of having limbs so a human might, might be born nor- without like a right arm but where the right arm should be they had organic riven stone growing out of their their body or they might be born without their legs and they would have riven stone growing out of where their legs should be so the humans have built basically powered prosthetics that are powered by Rivenstone that their most powerful heroes are these individuals that were, were built or born with these alterations. To them. That's pretty cool. So you'll have like a knight who looks normal, but he has one, he has one gigantic metallic arm that has like gun, uh, like revolvers built into the knuckles, Hell yeah. you know, barrel, barrel <laughs> those knuckles. And that's cause he's, he was born without a right arm, but he has literal magic growing out of his body. That sure. uses the power of this thing. I, I dig it because you, you usually that your your humans are like you know your bog standard kind of boring army even if there's a cool take on them and I like it like you know your your humans are kind of weird. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, everything's a little weird in this setting. Uh, so we have them. We have the Iron Guard, which are the it's a dwarvish business empire um, that basically they are the best at mining Ribbonstone and were before everything happened. And now that it's coming back, they're basically looking at the rest of the world and be like, oh, hey, hey, hey. 
there's supply, there's demand. We're in the best position because we understand the trade routes. We know how to mine it. So we're just going to get it all and we'll, we'll kick off the global economy. Um, so they're doing it for what they think is in their best interest, but really everyone just thinks they're being greedy. And their big look is when you look at these dwarves, they look like dwarves that have um, mining equipment, like mining walkers. Think like a, a power loader from Aliens or sure. like a giant, uh, you know, a dwarf in like a power armor suit that has drills for arms. Everything they have doubles as a piece of mining equipment and a piece of warfare. Cool. So they they are the the German engineering of factions. Everything is a, as efficient as it possibly can be. All right. Um, there's the Oryx which are orcs and savage creatures that they didn't hide during the ribbon storm. So they just got mutated. They're super big, super tough. And more importantly, all the wildlife in the world got uh, really savage and really feral. And they learned to tame it while they were surviving out in the wilds. So think savage land orcs. Think right. an orc riding a scaled dinosaur-esque uh, saber-toothed tiger kind of thing nice. is what the the orcs are and their whole thing is they've been out in the wild and everyone's coming back for rivenstone they're like yo we survived this absolutely not we're not doing this again so they're trying to destroy all the rivenstone and so when they get up to rivenstone they just break it to pieces because they don't want anybody to get it yeah uh and the fourth faction uh we have the risen uh who are our undead I will try and go through their backstory super fast sure one of one of the human nations tried to stop the augurs they went marching across the continent to go prevent the experimentation. They were halfway there in this giant, you know, all their regalia and their heraldry and their banners, and they were ready to fight the good fight where the storm kicked off and killed them all. Oops. They laid there dead for about 200 years, and then another storm passes over them, and it reanimates them all. Oh. So they've come, they are necromancers by necessity. They are a fallen human empire of undead who are thrust into the situation where now they are suddenly dead and sentient and really angry about it. And they've had to learn the dark arts, but not because they want to, not because of muhaha reasons, but because they're like, this literally is what is holding our people together. Right. Um, and then our fifth faction is the wild faction. And this is going to be things like dragons, giant mutated spiders, elementals. It's a faction of... Um, abnormal things that exist because of the Riven Stone and the Riven Storm. They are awesome. magic magic anomalies in the world. I think I think you just told me what mine was going to be. Go on. Oh, which one's yours? Yeah, I, I want to play weirdo monsters and spiders and dragons. Fair. Yeah, not all the, not all of that will be available at launch, but yeah. <laughs> that's the it will be. All right. Well, I'll find some um, in the meantime then. But that sounds pretty cool. Yeah. And so that that's the world. That's the setting without any rules or talking about how the game plays. You are playing a warband consisting of these types of characters going out and fighting against another warband. So it's not a giant army game. It's these, basically these, these various nations are scraping together their, their best and their brightest and being like, you're the ones going to go get us the Rivenstone so that we can kick the factories back into full gear so sure. that we can start building the armies and, and uh, uh, once again. And so sort of the, the fate of your nation rests on the shoulders of this, these war bands. Super cool. So let's, let's talk about gameplay. What, what's the gameplay like? So it's an alternating activation game. Like I said, it lasts about an hour. Um, it plays, you know, you have a lot of decisions to make, um, but learning the game is quite, quite simple. 
Let me start with, there's no points. There's no army points when you build a list. Okay. Um, what you do is you choose to play either a two-hero game or a three-hero game. And there's three types of models in the game. There's heroes, followers, and a barracks. So if you play a two-hero game, you play two heroes. If you play a three-hero game, you play three heroes. The amount of follower groups you get are based on how many heroes you're taking. You have a two-hero mm -hmm. game, you get three follower groups. and a three-hero game, you get four. You always get one barracks. So a hero is going to be a single model, and they are your most powerful character. And a follower group is going to be, depending on which one you pick, say you choose Risen Foot Soldiers. They have a muster stat of three. It says if you take them, you get three Risen uh, Foot Soldiers. If you take Oryx Brutes, they have a muster stat of two, which means you get two of them. And you build your warband out of this, and you build a barracks. This is a tempo-based war game, not an attrition-based war game. You cannot table your opponent. You as a player are always playing the game until the very end. And that's yeah. because you have a barracks, which might be a portal, literally like the orcs have a Rivenstone powered portal. Uh, the dwarves have a, it's called the breach head. It's a giant drill that comes out of the ground. Um, this barracks allows you at certain intervals in the game to bring additional reinforcements onto the battlefield out of your models that have died. So you constantly have a flow of, playing this playing the game jockeying for position and then whatever you lose you'll get to bring back but it's going to come back kind of near you know a set point on the board sure. where your your barracks happens to be what this leads the game to be is a very tug of war it's not i was able to kill five of your guys first therefore i'm winning it's maybe i made the first strike but that put me in a better position early on so now it's up to you to push me off and, and counter strike and we have this like back and forth constantly mm -hmm. um but speaking of there's no points, you pick your heroes. Your heroes say the types of follower keywords they unlock. So say you're playing Risen. And you pick a hero that says it unlocks Risen Undead Soldiers. That means any follower group that has the keyword Risen Undead and Soldier, you can choose that as one of your follower groups. Say another one has Risen Demons. That means any follower group that has Risen Demons, you can choose. And so your heroes dictate what kind of followers you are allowed to take, and you simply fill your slots. So it's whatever, like, whatever it's like Construct is always going to be pretty thematic. Is that is that pretty good? Assessment? Yeah, it, it is. It is. It is thematic, and the way things are balanced is based on the scoring system. So the way you win a game of Rivenstone, you play. There's a, you choose a scenario. And there's different scenarios. And you choose an event deck. Any event deck can go with any scenario. And the event decks are purely thematic. They're basically a thing that is happening on the battlefield. Maybe like a, a magical, you know, a remnant of a riven storm is passing over. Or maybe it's in the dead of winter. They just provide a, a, a cool thematic global effect that effect, affects both players. Uh -huh. But you pick your scenario. And the scenario says, okay, put your riven stone deposits here. And then maybe put some objectives or put this thing here or, or in this scenario, this is how you score scenario points. And they're all individual. Then every hero is worth points to your opponent when they die. Weaker heroes are worth very little points. More powerful heroes are worth more points. Okay. Finally, every hero has among their various abilities a quest. And that hero says, when this hero does this thing, score points. So when you build your list, you are building to say, I am building a warband that is trying to support my heroes doing this thing. 
And then I'm deciding what heroes, like how much of a risk do I want to take? Do I want to take a hero that only gives up one victory point when they die? Or do I want to take a mega powerful one that's going to really be a, a, a huge force on the table that my opponent really has to deal with, but they give up seven victory points yeah, when they sure. die? Yeah, sure. And also, what heroes, what followers are these heroes unlocking for me? Uh, and so you build your force kind of around, it's almost like in Magic where you build a deck and you're building your deck to do a thing. And then you play your opponent and you see how your plan versus their plan meet in the middle. Right. So you 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 might build a, an Iron Guard Dwarvish Warband that they score all their points by getting around Rivenstone and mining it. And they don't care about the scenario whatsoever. They don't even score points off the scenario. They, they just, it doesn't matter to them. And then you're facing an Oryx orc play, player who their list is completely built around scoring points by killing enemy followers they want to get into the thick of things and just murder dudes sure and there's a lot of different play styles that you can build off of that and so that's how you end up creating uh, a unique list and a sense of balance with no points there's no math involved you simply just go what are my heroes what did they unlock and then just kind of you read your cards and go okay, this guy's really good at doing this, so I want this follower that does that. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to build up from there and just keep adding more models and more play styles. But each faction will have its own sort of unique feel. I'd say the, the orcs are very killy. The humans are very, like, board controlly. They really want to spread out and take over territory, even if that sure, scenario sure. isn't doing that. That's just what they want to do. The Risen are very, like they want to do dark arts and magic studies and like, you know, maybe capture a guy and study him for a bit. And then the iron guard just want to mine. Like, they're just like, give me the Rivenstone. Uh-huh. Let's get to, let's get to work. And then wild is a really wild card. It could be any number of things. All right. That sounds pretty cool. Um, so, so, you know, what, what are some, we talked earlier about, you know, what you learned over, over the years of, of game design. So how, how did you apply those to these games? You know, what are some of the lessons that, that you're, we're going to see in action with this? A lot of it's going to be in the rules clarity and making sure that with the various moving parts it has, that it doesn't feel overwhelming to a player and that someone can grab the rule book and, and look at the diagrams and, and read through it in an evening and then feel like they can play this game and make meaningful decisions. And that the rules language is templated well so that, if a rule reads one way on one card, it reads in a very similar way on another card. Sure. Um, but you know, there, there's a, there's a decent amount of moving parts because both players have two resources. You have vigor, which recharges every turn and it, you can burn vigor to let your models do special things like charge or, you know, shake off an attack, things like that. And then mid game, there's a resource neither player starts with, which are Rivenstone shards. Anybody can walk up and, and mine Rivenstone and then, Various models have magic powers that are unlocked if you spend your Rivenstone. Sure. So you've got these these two resources you're managing. One you get refreshed every turn, and one you have to get in the middle of the game. Got the dice mechanic, which is, you know, actions are resolved on six-sided die, but they're proprietary die with symbols on them. So creating, like, new math, and or not new math, but doing the math on not traditional D6 bell curves. Uh-huh. Um, and then all the other pieces of just creating these scenarios and these... Uh, narrative event decks and all these 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 various uh, warband list constructions where you don't have points and keeping it all balanced. A lot of that can feel daunting, but I feel like the lessons I learned at Privateer and the various like mentors I had over the year prepared me to be able to do that and make a game that is easy to digest and at the end feels very fair and and balanced because of you know spending so long on War Machine, which if anybody's familiar, War Machine's a very deep, very strategic 
complex game with a sure. lot of a lot of moving point parts and you have to be very careful with the balance and this is a less complex game with less moving parts and so i feel like i feel like goku in dbz where i've come out of gravity training where i was like okay i've spent a lot of time working on something that had a ton of stuff going on and so i feel very well prepared to build on something that has less less going on because i kind of jumped in on the the deeper end of complexity as i started my my career so to dig into that what is goku uh dragon ball z i don't know dragon, dragon ball what, what is a dragon ball okay so there's seven dragon balls and if you can get all seven of them you get to make a wish now typically you're wishing for your friends to come back from the dead because they're constantly wow. fighting aliens this also is really cool Everything dies and every city gets destroyed. Okay, so... Oh, yelling gives you power. Sick. <laughs> All right, cool. Thanks for clearing that up. No Good problem. Oh. And there's, there's a lot more to the Ribbonstone individual gameplay that we I don't feel like we have enough time to get into. Sure, I just kind sure. of wanted to touch on some of the the higher level concepts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a couple of questions. So it's going to have proprietary dice, you said? Yep. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there's three dice in the game. There's D6s, which handle the vast majority of everything you do in the game. Um, they've got symbols on them uh, that those symbols indicate if you have a success when you're attacking, uh, success when you're defending, success if you're harvesting, and then there's a, you know things like a wild that's always a success no matter what. Um, one of the symbols is, is a, a focus. It's called focus. And before you make any die roll, you can burn one of your vigor for the round. You get seven every round to count focus as a success on that die roll. Vigor's the thing that also lets you do things like charge and a few other abilities. So it's one of your resources that allows you to make your die rolls a little bit more accurate. But typically attacking, defending, harvesting, interacting with, you know, making ingenuity rolls to interact with, you know, machinery or things that might be in the scenario, that's all done on D6s. And it's all basically either a target number, like you're trying to get X number of successes, or it's an opposed roll. Like I attack you, I uh -huh. roll... X number of dice, you roll X number of defense die. Did I beat you? Yes, then I do my damage. Um, there's a 10-sided attacker die that every time you make an attack, you roll it. And this is what adds, uh, so the, the die might have um, critical, a critical hit. Or it might be uh, you push whoever you hit. Or it might be a misfire, which as your range attack automatically misses. Um, there's a bunch of different symbols that you know give you a little element of unknown of what's going to happen with the attack. And then finally, there is a shard die, a D12 die, that is used whenever you harvest Rivenstone. Cool. And yeah. actually, one other question about gameplay. What size board does it play on? It plays on a 3x3. Three three. Nice. Uh, it doesn't use tape measures. Uh, everything is done with measurement sticks. The measurement is meant to be, uh, you know, so there's six measurements in the game. Use these measurement sticks. They're very. It makes movement very, very simple. The line of sight system is dead simple to understand. Okay. Um, there's no facing in the game, so you don't have to worry about which you, you basically pose your models thematically. Awesome. Uh, there is verticality in the game, but okay. it's not a required component. A game, you know, Kill Team Necromunda, you really want in a lot of those games some aspect of verticality and being able to sure. climb up things. Um, the terrain rules and the verticality rules are built so that what I wanted was no matter what board you sit down to play on, you have very easy rules to resolve. Okay. This is what this forest does. This is what this rock does, or this is what this castle does. And this is how I can climb it. Yeah. Um, so you can play with whatever amount of verticality you want. Um, 
And I think giving that like modular freedom to a player so that the terrain they have in their house and also just the setting, just because you might play in a very traditional fantasy setting. You might play in some ruins. You might play in this wild, wacky, I don't say wacky, just wild, crazy, magically altered area means if you have a Hoth table from Star Wars Legion, you're like, I just want to play on my ice, my ice table. There, that could exist here. Sure, absolutely. Your lava like, table or whatever, right? Yeah, do whatever you want to. And a lot of the rules are built that way to be accommodating to what you have, and so that you and your opponent play a game and have very little questions over what something is or how it should be resolved. Very cool. I'm excited. This sounds fun as hell. Yeah, it's we've been having a blast. The external play testers are are really enjoying it. They've been a ton of help too, just helping me find like discrepancies or you know what was too crunchy. That's one big question I've had is like you know what is what is too much. Sure. Um, and and lowering that down. And so you know I'm expecting the game to come out next year. It's it's hard to say exactly when. Um, the game yeah. is in. Oh, good. No, no, I was just say the world is a weird place at the moment. It's hard to be uh, too firm with deadlines right now. It is. I mean, for for just kind of be transparent, the game is in like the rules are done. If I had sat down with someone, with someone, I could hand them a rule book. That's, it's not a pretty one. It's mostly text, right? Sure. Um, they could read it, and then I could pull some models out, and we could play. Um, but right now, the rules are in editing and graphic graphic layout. And then, you know, the models are coming along at, like, this tremendous pace. I've been posting a bunch on my my Facebook and Twitter showing finished models as Jordan does them. And then there's the thing of like getting all the accessories and the custom dice, you know, yeah, actually manu- manufactured and, and shipped out. So we're kind of in that like end of stage three of making yeah, a yeah. game where you're just getting all the components together and then doing a ton of proofing. And so that's why I'm, I think I'm hoping early 2022 is when people should start, you know, seeing a little bit more. But I mean, we're going to keep previewing all the way. Yeah, yeah. So can you talk a little bit about products? Are there going to be starter boxes or a starter set? Yeah. Yeah, there's going to be starter boxes for uh, everything but wild. Um, Those starter boxes are a fully playable two-hero force. It's not like you either buy a starter box and then you might want to, you know, you could buy more to expand your force. But because the game is either played at the two-hero or three-hero level, the starter boxes will be, you know... uh, between nine and 12 models, depending on which faction you pick. Sure. And I say that that's just your war band and your barracks. Uh, you'll have Rivenstone deposits in the box. You'll have your rule book, all your tokens, all your measurement, everything you need. Your dice fully built. Lot. Yeah, everything. Um, there is a very strong potential of a two player starter as well. But even if there isn't like a one player box truly gets one player, a full force. Um, a lot of companies do that where they have starter boxes that are like a ready to go army. And I'm a big fan of that, especially if we can keep the price, the price in the right range. Oh, yeah. And I think, well, I can't say what the MSRP will be. I think the price is going to be um, shockingly good yeah. for a lot All of right. people where it will be a, a very um, easy investment. Yeah. For people to jump into. That's right. Um, beyond that. I mean, we'll have also the starter boxes, tons of expansions for the various factions uh, that being, you know, additional heroes, additional followers, stuff like that. And then I've, we already have a plan for once that big initial wave comes where everybody kind of gets all their, their first wave of toys and can start playing the game. We already know where we're going next and what will be the models coming after and, and, and getting those going. Cool, man. That's really exciting. So let me ask you one more question before I let you go. What is your favorite thing about the game? Um, my favorite thing about the game is... It's weird as a game designer. Okay. 
as someone making the game, watching other people playing it and having fun. That's all you want to see as a game. You want to see, you want to see people play it. And at the end of it, they go, oh man, that was awesome. Or seeing people cheer when they roll well or go, ah, oh, crap, when they, they do something wrong. Sure. That, that is my personal pleasure out of it but that's sort of a greedy one because you know you it's like i i baked this cake for you do you right. like the taste of it like yeah. you want to see people go oh, i'm num 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 i love it i think my personal favorite aspect of it is that it really approaches how you put together your components to build a list and play the game very differently than i've seen in other war games and it does feel very different I, you know for all the war games i've played at the end of it, the, the first bit of feedback I get from everybody who plays it first time, they're like, man, I never felt like I was out of the game. Like they, they were like, even when like you were, all your heroes were doing all their quests and you had control of the board. I had a bunch of guys come back out of my barracks and I was able to push back with like this big heroic pushback. And it, it gives these kind of like cinematic moments of like the counter charge and then the counter counter charge. And it's just going back and forth, back and forth. Um, and, it, it generates this, this excitement, this like native excitement to the game that I think is my favorite gameplay aspect of it. Awesome. That sounds really engaging. Yeah. I, I, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> when people get it, they're like, Oh, this is awesome. And I'm like, ah, please throw in the garbage. Please don't right. do that. Please don't throw the game in the garbage. No, please don't. <laughs> and then, you know, obviously I can't talk about any of them yet, but already working on the next thing. That's not Rivenstone. Like, oh, yeah that Rivenstone will not be the only thing Broken Anvil is putting out. And yeah. I should mention for anybody who joins up with Patreon, um, starting two months ago, um, I've been designing 5e compatible rules for some of the miniatures that come out each month. For 5e Dungeons uh, and Dragons? Yeah. Cool. And a one-page adventure uh, that is illustrated by Chris Walton. Um, so everybody who's a Patreon, not only they get these miniatures, but they get this very simple one-page dungeon and then like between five and 10 monster stat blocks that if you're a, a, a 5e fan, you can just pick this up and take these, integrate them into your campaign. I try to make the, you know, things like you find a cave or you this is underneath a basement, whatever it is, so that you can slot it into whatever campaign you want. So if anybody's more of a strict RPG player and isn't a war game player, I would definitely recommend checking out the Patreon for for those kind of things yeah that's awesome there are some super cool figures on there yeah i mean this are up they just put the preview up for october and we have all these little different groups in it it's a it's a the panic at Morfrost manor it's a very haunted house theme and we have a set of mimics and for every mimic you get you get a regular version of the piece of furniture that it's supposed to be and then the mimic version oh man that's so, great yeah yeah <laughs> that's so good one is a part of a wall with a mounted deer head on it. And then the mimic version is the mount has come loose and the deer is screaming. It has like, it's using its antlers, its arms and legs. Amazing. There's a piano and then you get the piano as if it was open and has like a tongue coming out and teeth and just all these amazing things. So yeah, definitely, definitely check those out because those mimics blew me away. Awesome. I will go look at that as soon as we get off this, uh, this chat. All right, man. It's been great talking to you and uh, maybe we can have you back on when the game's actually out. We can talk about gameplay and maybe I'll play it by then. Absolutely, absolutely, and and thanks for having me on. It's 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 been too long since we've done this. It's yeah. been like six years, maybe five more. years, something like that. Since oh, we man. we were on a podcast together, we are, so we're, yeah, we're old. God, are we old? Yeah. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> rest in peace. I'll talk to you soon, dude. Thanks for coming. Later on. 
Brush Builders Union is a community of like-minded miniatures gamers dedicated to playing their games fully painted and supporting one another in their craft. Brush Builders Union is here to help you stay on track with tools and a community of fellow painters to encourage you in your journey. Take the Union Pledge and learn more at brushbuildersunion.com. 